you are visiting with us for the first time this morning, welcome. We are very glad that you are here and that even in spite of the uh, cold, drizzly morning that you would come and join with us. And hey, wherever you find yourself on your spiritual journey, whether or not you've been walking with Jesus for a very long time or you're brand new to Christianity, we hope that this is a community where you feel safe to further explore who Jesus is and what it means to follow Him. Now, this morning we're going to be continuing on in our series that we began a couple weeks ago called God and Sexuality. And so, if you have a Bible, why don't you open with me, if you've not already done so, to 1 Corinthians 7. 1 Corinthians 7. 1 Corinthians 7. Are you all there? All right, let's pray together. Father, we give you thanks and we give you praise that you have spoken to us and you have revealed yourself to us in your word And we ask, oh God, that as we open up our Bibles, that you would open up our hearts and our minds and that you would speak and that you would make us attentive to your voice and that in hearing your good voice and your wisdom, that we would be changed, that we would be instructed, that we would find guidance and that our lives would be changed. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Amen. So as we continue on in our series this morning, today we're going to be talking together about the topic of marriage and divorce. And I'm going to be sharing with you a message entitled, Marriage Outside of the Garden. And what we're going to be specifically talking about are the difficulties and challenges we can face when we are in marriage. Now, if you're not yet married, you can find your think, well, this is maybe for uh, married people, it's not for, for me. But actually, the best time to talk about marriage in many ways, the best time to actually give some reflection on what leads to divorce is before you have one. And to actually get some time preparing and thinking about what leads to a healthy marriage. And so that's what we're going to be talking about today. So this year, my wife and I are celebrating our 20th anniversary. Now, I know for some of you who have been married for 30 or 40 or 50 or some of you 60 years, that doesn't sound that impressive, but I think it is a real accomplishment. So 20 years ago this September, I stood before my wife, and she is my best friend. She was my best friend then, and she was this godly woman of character who was smart and strong and amazing, and she has been that way all the way through, and I pledged myself to love her through thick and through thin, you know, through richer, for poor, in sickness, and in health till death do us part. And that began a journey that has brought me a ton of joy, and it has been delightful. And I wouldn't trade anything in the world to be married to my wife, Alicia. And so it is just a gift. It is amazing. But, but, (laughs) we have had our rough patches. And Alicia and I have had moments. We have times in our marriage where we have sinned against each other and we have hurt each other where we have spoken past each other. We have had moments where we have yelled at each other at the top of our lungs, where we have, out of our own hurt and pain, we have inflicted more hurt and pain on each other. Now, some of you are looking at me and you're thinking, you have, Pastor. How could you? (laughs) You know, you're a pastor. But I would gather that almost no one in this room is thinking that because you all have been there. 
and you know that marriage can be a very difficult thing. It can be incredible. It can be life-giving, but it can also be full of challenges and difficulties. And there are many and varied reasons for the challenges and difficulties. And of course, one of the reasons is, is that because you, when you get married, you, you, you marry a sinner and you, you, your spouse is a broken and sinful person. In fact, your spouse's spouse is a sinful and broken person. And your spouse's spouse also has some issues, don't they? Some of you are just figuring that out. You're like your spouse's spouse. That would be you. And marriage is difficult because people change. Uh, Lewis Meads once quipped, he said, my wife has been married to five men and all of them have been me. And you know, a death of a parent, menopause, depression, a midlife crisis, a faith crisis, retirement, success, failure, a whole number of things can, can bring changes in who we are as people. And that can have an effect on the people who we're married to. Marriage is difficult sometimes because people don't change. And some of you, you've tried. You've tried very, very difficult and very, very hard, and you found that it is difficult to change the person who you're married to. And some of you, you thought, you know, early on, you thought, man, they, they're going to grow out of this. They will mature. You know, they'll, they'll change. I, I know it. And then you get further and further on in marriage, and at some point it occurs to you, they're not going to change. I'm going to have to deal with it. Marriage can be hard because of any number of issues relating to sex or money or in-laws or children or our fears and our insecurities or the dysfunctional patterns and family systems that we grew up in and we've never quite learned to shake. And so marriage can create all kinds of difficulties and as a result, marriage can oftentimes be a place where instead of experiencing joy and the richness of a deep abiding relationship, we actually experience some pain and some difficulty. You know, it's like that old country song, you know, I'm so miserable now that you're gone, it's almost like you're here. You guys remember that one? (laughs) Took a minute, didn't it? Yeah. But you know, when times get tough, when marriages get difficult, oftentimes the temptation is, is to walk away or to check out. And sometimes that might mean actually filing for divorce or separating. Sometimes it might just mean you're checking out. You said, you know, I've tried and I've tried and I've tried and I can't get a divorce because what are the children going to think? What's the church going to think? So I'm just going to stick in it. Or maybe you actually do pull the trigger and you walk away. Some of you perhaps are in a place right now where you, you have been through a divorce and you know the pain of that. You have been now on your second marriage, some of you on a third marriage, some of you have grown up in homes where your parents divorced and you experienced the repercussions of that. And so marriage can be a place of difficulty, it can be a place of pain, it can be a place where where we can sometimes feel like we want to walk away, we want to check out, we want to give up. Well, if you have ever found yourself in that place, you are not alone because apparently there was a group of Christians in the first century church in Corinth who were struggling with the very same thing. In fact, Paul actually writes in this letter to encourage Christians who are in many ways struggling from some serious issues in their marriage. 
Now, within first century Corinth, it was very, very common for people to get divorced. And so people, when they'd find difficulties in their marriage, they would be able to just quickly and easily get divorced. And so divorce in the first century was widespread and it was rampant. Uh, Seneca, the famous Roman philosopher and statesman and contemporary of the Apostle Paul, he said this, he said, few women blush at divorce and reckon their years not by the number of consuls, but by the number of husbands. They leave home in order to marry, and they marry in order to divorce. And and it was very easy to get a divorce in the first century. You wouldn't have to hire an attorney. You wouldn't have to go to court. You wouldn't have to go through, you know, all of the litigation. You could actually just either move out of the house if your spouse owned it, or you could kick your spouse out if you didn't want them there anymore. And the moment they moved out, you were free from that marriage and you could go and you could get remarried if you wanted. And so as a result of how easy divorce was, it was rampant and it was common. And apparently what was common in the culture was seeping into the church in Corinth. I wonder what it's like to have issues and the values of the culture to seep into a church. Could you imagine what that's like? Some of the same practices that happen in the broader culture actually surface in the life of a church. Well, that was happening in first century Corinth. Paul sees these problems. He sees marriages are falling apart. And and one of the reasons why he's writing to this church is in order to provide them guidance, yes, on the broad issue of God and sexuality, but also on the specific issue of marriage and divorce. And he covers that topic in the verses that we are looking at this morning. And so I want to invite you to join with me as we walk through these verses. Uh, They can be broken down into two major sections. Uh, The first part, Paul deals with a marriage between two Christians. In other words, these are two followers of Jesus who are in the church in Corinth who are considering divorce. So he first addresses that issue. And then the second set of verses, he discusses the issue of mixed marriage. In other words, a marriage between a Christian and a non-Christian. And as we look together at what Paul says to both of these types of marriages, we learn principles for ourselves and our own lives when it comes to marriage, whether we are single, whether we are divorced, or whether we've been married for a month, or we've been married for 60 years, we find principles here that are fertile for provoking rich and vibrant relationships with each other. And so let's look together at what Paul says in these verses. Now, notice what he says in chapter 7, verse 10. Look at how he discusses uh, the marriage between two Christians, verse 10. He says, to the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. And notice Paul begins this section by saying, and this I say, but not I, but the Lord. And so at this point, Paul is going to be basing his teaching on teaching that Jesus himself gave. And so he appeals to the authority of Jesus when he talks to them about marriage and divorce. Now, it's almost certainly the case that the passage that he has in the back of his mind is from Matthew chapter 19, a very well-known passage, and this was probably a tradition that was circulating around the churches, and many of the churches had this teaching from Jesus. But in this passage, the most extensive teaching that Jesus gives on the subject of divorce, some Pharisees come to Jesus and they ask him about the grounds for divorce. 
They want to know, like many people in our churches today, what is the grounds for divorce? When is it okay for a Christian to be divorced? Now, this was a live debate in the first century, and there were two main schools of thought on the issue within Judaism. There was the school of Hillel, which was more lenient, and they essentially said that somebody could get a divorce for just about any reason whatsoever. But then there was the more strict school of Shammai that said that divorce could only occur if there had been a violation of the marriage covenant through adultery. And so there was this debate, what are the grounds for divorce? And so the Pharisees, they go to Jesus, it says they came to Him to test Him, and they said, Jesus, where do you weigh in on this debate? What are the grounds for divorce? And I want you to notice that in Jesus' response, He shifts the playing field from the grounds of divorce to the nature of marriage. And look at what it says. And the Pharisees came to Him and tested Him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. And so notice first Jesus turns their attention from the grounds of divorce to the nature of marriage. And he says three things about the nature of marriage. First, he says that marriage is not a byproduct of culture. It's not culturally relative or culturally conditioned, but it is part of God's purpose for male and female relationships in the world from the beginning. In other words, God created marriage. God is the author of marriage. And so he says, have you not heard that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Second, Jesus points out that marriage is founded upon a covenant that is indissoluble that forms a new one flesh union. In other words, when two people pledge themselves before God and before people, and then they consummate their covenant in the physical act of sex, the two become one flesh and they are united together and bound together as one. And so the two become one. And then finally, Jesus says, Therefore, what God has joined together, if the two become one flesh, if these two people entering into a covenant form a new indissoluble union, then let not anyone separate what God has joined together. In other words, they ask about divorce. What are the grounds for divorce? And Jesus says, look, from the beginning, it has never been God's intention for there to be divorce. God's intention is for us to live vibrant lives, experiencing human flourishing through delighting in rich relationships, and especially here in marriage. So now turn back to 1 Corinthians, or let me turn your attention back to 1 Corinthians 7, and look at what Paul says. He pivots on the teaching of Jesus, which was probably well known, and he essentially says, look, a wife should not separate from her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. And so, in the midst of a culture where divorce was easy and rampant, Paul says, it shall not be so among you. You need to remain loyal to your covenant vows. Be faithful to your marriage. 
Now, that raises a question. Certainly, it raises a question for the people in the church. Well, okay, that's a nice ideal, but in the real world, some people in our church have already been divorced. People have already experienced problems and fractures in their own marriages. This is a broken world and broken people, and we sin against each other, and we make stupid decisions, and and, and we hurt each other, and and marriages fall apart. What, What happens then, Paul, if there has been a breach in one of the marriages within our community, and there has been a divorce? And notice what Paul says. So for these two Christians that are in the Christian community, maybe that are part of the same church in Corinth who have divorced, here's what Paul says. He says, if they've divorced and they're in the same church, he says there's two options. He says, first, you can remain unmarried. This is what he says in verse 10. To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried Or, he says, there's a second option, you can be reconciled to your spouse. Now, I think it's interesting, the options that are not on the table. He doesn't say that the divorced should be expelled from the church or should be treated like they are damaged goods or second-class citizens or excluded from the Lord's Supper. He doesn't say that they should be kicked out nor does he say that they should confine themselves to a miserable marriage where they are suffering and where life just stinks. Instead, he says, they can remain unmarried or they can enter back into a relationship and they can be reconciled with their believing spouse. Now, I need to point out that what Paul is specifically addressing here is the case of two Christians that are divorced within a church family. Now, at my old church that I was at at Hope in Albuquerque, there was at least one couple, there was actually probably a second couple, that divorced and both individuals remained in our church. And I can remember counseling them and encouraging them not to get divorced. I said, you're both Christians, you're both followers of Jesus, you should learn how to work this out. But they refused. And so what do you do in that moment? Do they get kicked out of the church? Do we exclude them from the Lord's Supper? Do we kick them while they're down? Well, Paul says they can stay in church or and remain unmarried. And why do they remain unmarried? Well, because in God's eyes, he still sees that these two followers of Jesus have become one and there's a potential that one of them may shift gears and they can actually be reconciled. And so he says, look, in this case, they should either remain unmarried or they should be reconciled. That's just what he says. Or else be reconciled to their husband. And so that's the case that he's dealing with, with the case of two Christians in the church. But now there's a second case that is raised before Paul. And this is the case not of two Christians who are in the same church, but here is the case of people in the church who are in mixed marriages. In other words, in a marriage where one person is a believer and the other is not a believer. Now, certainly this was a common occurrence in the first century. Paul goes into this Greco-Roman city and he announces the good news that God has acted in Jesus to defeat the powers of sin and death and darkness and make everything new and form a new humanity where there was neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, black nor white, Jew nor Gentile, but all are one family in Jesus Christ. And people heard this good news and they responded to it. And sometimes one person in a marriage would respond and they would become a follower of Jesus and the other would remain an unbeliever. And this created issues in the marriage. 
It often does. And this probably raised questions in the people in the church in Corinth. You see, for many of these people, they had some mentality that, that look, uh, they felt like once they had become a follower of Jesus, they had been made holy. They had been made right with God. And now they're concerned if they continue in a physical relationship and a marital relationship with somebody who is unholy and impure, is that going to make them unholy and impure? And wouldn't it be better if we just got out of this marriage and we broke it off altogether? And so they put this issue to Paul and they say, Paul, what, what, what's, what do we do with this situation? And he addresses it now in verses 12 to verse 16. And these are some of the most confusing and interesting verses that are in the Bible on the issue of marriage. And so let's look at what Paul says here. He says, to the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. And if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. And so Paul says, look, scenario one is that this, your spouse is willing, in spite of your differences in faith commitments, your spouse is willing to stay married to you. Paul says you can remain in that marriage. Stay committed to that marriage. But then he gives, uh, and, then he, and then he gives the reason for this. He says, for, and this is fascinating, he says, for the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. I like how matter-of-fact Paul is, like we all understand exactly what he's talking about. Otherwise, you know, your children would be unclean, of course, we all realize that. But as it is, they are holy. You know what I mean? We're thinking, no, Paul, we don't know what you mean. <laughs> what are you talking about? And what does he mean when he says that the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband? I mean, is Paul saying that there's actually two ways to get saved? One way is to put your faith and trust in Jesus, to confess your sins, to repent, and to receive his free gift of righteousness. And the other is to marry a Christian, and then you're just made holy. Some of you didn't know that was an option. You would have done that. <laughs> no, is that what he's saying? What is he talking about here? Well, we need to kind of get under the surface and understand a little bit of the mindset of especially a former Pharisee, which Paul was in the first century, and many of the Jewish converts in the first century. They had a mentality about holiness that was derived from the Old Testament that the way a holy person became unclean and defiled was by touching that which was unholy. And so if I was a pure priest and I go out and I touch a dead body that is considered unclean, all of a sudden I am defiled and I am made unclean. But what Paul wants to say is that the actual reverse happens in the ministry of Jesus and can happen in a Christian marriage. You see, in the ministry of Jesus, Jesus, the most holy, clean person to ever walk the face of the earth, when he touched the unclean, it didn't bring defilement upon him. It actually brought his healing and cleansing to them. It wasn't that the unclean made the holy unclean. It was that the clean, the holy one, made the unclean holy and clean. Does that make sense? And Paul says a dynamic like that can be at play in marriage. 
where a follower of Jesus can actually have a holifying, a sanctifying effect on their partner. Now, how can this happen? Well, I've been reading uh, lately, I just actually finished reading the book Unbroken. Anybody here read Unbroken? If you've not read it, you should read it. It is awesome. It's the story of Louis Zamperini, who was a famous Olympian uh, runner back in uh, the early 20s, or maybe 30s, or 40s. I don't know. Anyway, he goes to World War II. <laughs> I think he was born in 1920 or something. Anyway, he finds himself in World War II, shot down. He goes through all this like drama. I won't give away the story. But he comes back and he's kind of just a mess psychologically. War has messed him up. And he gets married to the love of his life. And several months into their marriage, it is just a disaster. He's having flashbacks. He's waking up in the night with his hands around her neck, strangling her, imagining her. He's, she's an old captive of his that was, uh, you know, abusing him when he was in Japan. And he has this total train wreck of a marriage, and he is drinking more and more every day in order to forget his pain. And he is just a wreck. He's an alcoholic, and, and he's got outbursts of anger, and, and he is spiraling downward. And one day, his wife goes to a crusade that is being put on in Los Angeles by a young upstart evangelist whose name was Billy Graham. And he preaches the gospel. She hears this message, and she is dramatically changed. And before she went, she had already moved out and told him that she was divorcing him. And after she is transformed by the gospel, she comes back into the marriage, and she says, I'm not divorcing you, but you need to come with me to hear this man speak. And he said, no, I'm not going to come. And she says, no, you need to come with me to hear this man speak. And then she just cajoles him and cajoles him and finally gets him there. And he hears the gospel and Louis Zamperini is radically transformed by Jesus. And you see what happened. The unbelieving husband has been, been made holy by his wife. She, through her active praying, through her active invitations, through her way of life, through how she's loving him, has had a a radical effect on his life. And I think Paul alludes to this down in verse 16 of chapter 7 when he says this, wife, do you know, how do you know whether you will save your husband? And husband, how do you know whether or not you will save your wife? So he's saying, look, stay in the marriage because you can have a positive effect on your unbelieving wife or your unbelieving husband. Now, I know that raises a host of questions that are commonly asked within the church. Well, what if the person is in an abusive situation? Should you stay there? Well, listen, sometimes by staying in an abusive situation, you're only enabling somebody in their own dysfunction. And they will not come to the light of awareness of their own stupidity and their own folly until you take dramatic action. And sometimes that means, and it always means if you are in an abusive situation where your life or your children's life is in harm's way, you need to get out of there and protect yourself and your children. But sometimes it is that act that actually wakes your spouse up and brings them back around. But Paul knows that sometimes, even after our best efforts to save a marriage, a marriage cannot be saved. And so sometimes somebody wants to divorce you anyway. And so now he deals with the second scenario, which is somebody who's unwilling to stay in the marriage. And he says this. Verse... Uh, 15, he says, but if the unbelieving partner separates, in other words, the person, in, in spite of the fact that you're trying to save the marriage, they don't want anything to do with it. He says, if they separate, 
He says, let it be. Let it be. Let it be. Let it be. I'm sorry, it's just... But he says, look, if they are determined to divorce, he says, let them be. And then he says, you are no longer enslaved. And so this is probably a situation where somebody gets converted, they're kicked out of their house, the person now is moved on, they're remarrying, and the person who's divorced is now asking the question, am I supposed to just stay in the state for the rest of my life? I didn't choose this, it was thrust upon me, what do I do now? And notice what Paul says. He says, they are no longer enslaved to that old person, and instead they have become free. And it is arguably the case that what he's saying is that they are free to remarry. So this is what Paul is saying. And then he says this. He says, let it be so in such cases, the brother and sister is not enslaved, for God has called you to peace. Now let's just stop here. And what I want to do is I want to stand back and I want us just to make three observations about Jesus' teaching that are informative to us who might think about getting married one day or might be in marriage or maybe who've been through divorce or maybe who are considering divorce or who are just in the midst of very difficult marriages. Help us here. And there's three things I just want to draw to your attention. And the first is this, is that according to Paul, one of the main purposes of marriage is growth and holiness. Do you see that in the text? He talks about the unbelieving husband being made holy by the wife, the unbelieving wife being made holy by her husband. In other words, they're having a mutually beneficial effect on each other, or at least in this case, it's a one-sided beneficial effect on the other. Later in Ephesians 5, Paul will say that what is true for an unbeliever and a believer in a marriage is also true for two believing partners in a marriage. In other words, in marriage, one of your chief goals is to see the character formation and the growth of the person you are married to. You know, there are a lot of different purposes in marriage. Marriage, of course, is given by God so that we will not be lonely. God says it is not good for a person to be alone. And so one of the the, the gifts of God to humanity is marriage so that you can know this deep, intimate relationship in marriage. And of course, another purpose in marriage is procreation, so that we might be fruitful and multiply. But Paul here gives a third purpose in marriage, and this is all important. One of God's purposes, one of his aims for marriage is that we would be a tool in each other's sanctification and growth and holiness. Now, you all have problems, don't you? You are a congregation full of issues, and your pastor has problems, and he has issues. I have rough edges, and you have rough edges that we need shaved off. And one of the crucibles that God takes you into that will shave off some of your hard edges in your life, in your personality, in your character is in marriage, because it is here that you can't hide. I mean, you can hide, but for only so long and you are exposed. And all of a sudden, you know, stuff in your own life starts surfacing, and God can use the marriage relationship in order to hone you and shape you and form you into being a better follower of Jesus. So do you see that this is one of the roles that you have in the life of the person you are married to? You are there in order to help them grow in holiness. 
Now, I'm not saying you're there to nag them and to nitpick them and to point out all of their faults. Some of you are very adept at that. If that's you, why don't you just raise your hand? (laughs) If that's your spouse, why don't you raise your... No, that won't be helpful for any marriage. There's this great scene in the movie, As Good As It Gets. I don't know if you remember this movie from back in the 90s, Jack Nicholson, Helen Hunt. But my favorite scene in that movie is they're sitting around this dinner table, and throughout the movie, Jack Nicholson is this mean-spirited, you know, cantankerous guy who's got all of these psychological issues, you know, and he can't help but just always be criticizing and complaining, and he's sitting around the dinner table with Helen Hunt, and she just says, you know, could you just try to say something nice to me for a change? And he says, I, I got a compliment that's real good. And he says, and it's also true. He said, when, when, when the, the first day we met, he says, I went home that day, and he said, my, my therapist had given me pills uh, that he said, in 50% of the cases, it's supposed to make the patient better. And he said, and that day, I started taking my pills. And he smiled at her. And she said, how is that a compliment? <laughs> and he said, you make me want to be a better man. And listen, this is one of the core purposes of marriage, that you might be for the good of the other. Now, of course, one of the ways in which you help your spouse grow and change is by speaking truthfully and in love. And one of the ways you can stimulate growth in your own life is by not hiding the deepest junk in your life, but by exposing that so that you might go through a process of formation and healing in your marriage. But this is one of the purposes of marriage. It is for our own holiness and growth. And this should give us some insight if you are single and you're contemplating one day getting married about the kind of person who you want to marry. And a good question to ask in addition to, am I attracted to this person and are they godly and are they, do, are they you know, uh, do I get along with them? Can they be my best friend? But another important question is, is, can this person actually help stimulate and grow me in holiness? Are they making me a better human being? It's a very important question to ask. So number one, one of the main purposes of marriage is growth and holiness. Secondly, the second observation I have from this text is this, and this is so important. The alternative to divorce is not no divorce, but reconciliation. I don't know if you saw that in the text, but earlier Paul says, look, if you get divorced, he doesn't just say, he didn't slap them on the hand, he doesn't scold them and say, no divorce. Instead, he calls them to reconciliation. You know, sometimes I'll sit down with couples in my office and they will be on the brink of divorce. And couples in their mind's eye can only see two alternatives. Alternative one is divorce, and in their mind that means escape. Escape from the pain and the hurt and the difficulties and the trials and the personality of this person. And the other side is no divorce. Divorce is bad, and so uh, the pastor is going to force me to stay in this thing, and I'm going to be trapped in a miserable marriage for the rest of my life. And they can only see these two options, divorce or no divorce. But according to Paul, according to Jesus, according to the Bible, those are not the two options. There's a third option, a better way, and that is the way of reconciliation and healing. 
Ultimately, God's desire is for us to find reconciliation and healing in broken relationships and broken hearts and broken lives. But you know as well as I do that reconciliation and healing only come on the long end of a journey that involves a very dark valley. You know, my wife and I, we've gone through different seasons in our life where we've experienced difficulties and challenges in our marriage. And in those seasons, in those valleys, it is hard and it is painful. And yet, in the crucible of our own difficulties, God is at work in us, and He has brought us through those to deeper healing and reconciliation. And you know, when you are in dark times and when you're, you're opened up and you're vulnerable, vulnerability always results in intimacy and deeper relationship. And so there is healing, there is reconciliation, there's growth, there's good things, but it's always on the long end of a dark valley you have to walk through. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. Divorce does not save you from a dark valley. Divorce takes you into a different kind of dark valley. And very often, you hit the eject valve on on the work God wants to do in your life. You know, very often you think in, you know, when you're in difficulties in marriage, it's all them, it's all them, but you fail to see that you also have a role to play. You know, Andy Stanley, I shared this with you a while back, he once said that he sits down with marriages who are, you know, kind of falling apart sometimes in his office, and he says he'll draw a pie chart on a whiteboard in his office. And he'll ask the spouse who has come to see him complaining about his wife or her husband, and he'll, he'll just say, hey, could you just draw a slice of this pie that represents your contribution to the problems in the marriage? And sometimes, if they're being generous with their self and their spouse, they'll do maybe 10% of the pie. Like, look, I, 90% is on, 80% is on them, 20%, 10% is on me. And then he says, well, let's talk about this 10%. Tell me about that. And he says, in almost every case, it is impossible for them to talk about their own stuff. And friends, unless we learn how to recognize our own sin, our own contributions, the way we speak to each other and treat each other, and we're able to name the stuff in our own life, we will never see growth and transformation. But if you do, what's on the long end of that is your own character formation and growth, which character formation and growth is a beautiful thing, don't you think? And that's what I want in my life. I want to become more like Jesus. I know that fullness of life is found not when I become more and more absorbed in myself and I can get better at making biting comments and putting people down and winning arguments. That doesn't make me happy. Does that make you happy? Joy, some of you said yes, (laughs) but only temporarily. True life is found in the difficult and in the beautiful and in the self-giving way of Jesus. Final observation from this text is that God desires your peace. Now, you might be in here this morning, you might say, well, Josh, I have already messed it up. I mean, I've been through my divorce. I've been through two divorces And I would like to say that it was her problem or it was his problem, but actually I was the person that brought this thing about. 
I'm a mess, I've screwed it up, it seems like I stick my foot in my mouth all the time, I always make mistakes, I've got addictions, I've got issues, I, I'm just a mess. Josh, what about me? What do you say to me? And here's what I say. Welcome to the kingdom of the broken. And welcome to the king who has left everything and who has moved heaven and earth and who has embraced within himself all of our own brokenness and sin and shame and darkness in his own life, in his own death on the cross. He bore it in himself so that he might bring it to an end so that in him taking upon himself your own shame and brokenness, he might give you the gift of peace and wholeness and healing and reconciliation. Christianity is at its heart about reconciliation. It is about your healing. God wants you to know healing. But you need to receive it. You need to receive Jesus and his gift into your life. And if that's you this morning, if you find your place in this place of guilt and shame for all the mistakes you've made, I just want to say, turn to Jesus. He is here. He is ready to to bring his life and his forgiveness into your life. In just a minute, we are going to invite you to come forward and to receive the Lord's Supper. And I want to invite you in this practice, if you, especially if you find yourself in a place of feeling ashamed and broken and feel like, you know, I've made a mess, I'm a follower of Jesus, but I am a mess, come to this table because Jesus accepts you as you are. He knows you down, he loves you still, and he changes you and he works in your life, but you need to come to him, be open with him, be honest with him. And if you're in a place right now where you are having challenges and difficulties in your marriage, you cannot go through this alone. You need others. You need community. You know, in uh, the next couple weeks, we're actually going to be launching a couple new groups, support groups for some men and women. And look for that information in the weeks ahead. But if that's you, you're in a place where you feel like, I need support. I need people who can walk beside me, who can help me, who can encourage me. We're going to be starting groups for you, and we will invite you to get in and get a part of those groups and stop living a hidden life, but expose yourself and become known because you will not find healing until you come into the light and you receive the grace of God.